everybody, Magnus here. You know, a lot of people make fun of 1990s comics. The way they tell it, you'd almost think they weren't avidly collecting those same comics themselves. But me? I've got a real soft spot for 90s comics, and so, starting in December of 2017, I'm launching a six-part mega-series called Cover Date, January 1991. The idea is to talk about, well, comics with a January 1991 cover date. Anyway, yeah, that's right. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going back to January 1991 for a look back at what comics were really like. Is it really as bad as people say? Well, there's only one way to find out. I want you to test drive some 1990s comics along with me. Who knows? You just might find something to fall in love with all over again. So, come back to January 1991 with Trennis Magnus for a fond, festive, frolicking trip down memory lane. The fun starts in December 2017 only at Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. You can find Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at TwoTrueFreaks.com or by searching in iTunes. Or, I guess you could search on Google if you're feeling really lazy. Cover date. January 1991 because 1990s comics are awesome. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. And today I felt like talking about a Star Wars comic. Now, for those of you who came to the show late, what you need to know is that once upon a time, ages and ages ago, I, I had... Star Wars set up as part of my my eight episode structure. You know, basically it goes like this. I have six episodes where I talk about whatever I want. And then I have a seventh episode, which for a long time I used with Chris Honeywell to talk about the DC Paradox Press line of big books. And then the eighth episode is about Smallville. But for a while there, the eighth episode was actually used to talk about Star Wars comics. And what I eventually came to realize is I don't have as much to say about Star Wars as I originally thought. And so I replaced Star Wars with Smallville. A decision that shall live in infamy. But anyway, that's what happened. That's what I did. And for the most part, I haven't really looked back, but periodically I do get the occasional itch 
to talk about some Star Wars comics, and so that's basically what what's happened here. I just want to talk about a Star Wars comic, but not just any Star Wars comic. No, no. What I want to do is talk about Star Wars Tales number two. Now, for those of you with very short memories, I talked about Star Wars Tales number one back in episode 183 of this show, so if you're just fucking desperate to listen to me talk about Star Wars Tales number one, that's your episode to go back to. But Star Wars Tales uh, number two, that's going to be today's subject, and as with Star Wars Tales number one, the shtick of this, uh, of Star Wars Tales as a, as a as a title is basically an anthology book that presented a bunch of different and usually unrelated stories presented with each other. Pretty simple, huh? And so as it goes for the first story in Star Wars Tales number two, this is titled Routine. And basically goes a little something something like this. Actually, first, writer is Tony Isabella, penciler is John Nadeau, inker is Jordy Ensign, letterer is Vicki Williams, colorist is Dave Nestel, editor is Pete Janes, and publisher, of course, is Dark Horse Comics. So, summary goes a little something-something like this. The Vigilant, an imperial ship under the command of Captain Dade Lanou on border patrol duties, stops a Corellian corvette called Jaina's Light, piloted by one Han Solo. Lanou orders Lieutenant Reprise to perform a level one search of the ship, but he finds nothing. The next time Jaina's Light crosses the Vigilance patrol route, Lanou orders a level two inspection as he is completely positive there's more to Solo than meets the eye. The inspection, once again, shows nothing suspicious. The third time the Vigilant intercepts the Jaina's light, Captain Lanou, frustrated, demands a level 5 inspection, but and his, his orthodox uh, subordinate, Lieutenant Reprise, counsels the captain not to abandon their normal duties just on one man's suspicion. Jaina's light is cleared to leave, but Captain Lanou realizes that They've actually inspected three different ships rather than just one ship, and in fact, Han Solo is smuggling spaceships, not cargo. The Vigilant opens fire on Solo, but he's long gone by then. The end. So, what did I think? Well, I gotta tell you, I, before we even get into the story, I just want it to be understood, I fucking dig this art. There's something about it that everybody everybody in this story, they just kind of have this kind of 70s sort of look to them. And it's actually pretty easy to believe that they're kind of of a piece with Star Wars, the original Star Wars film, which I call simply Star Wars. Not A New Hope, not Episode 4, none of that stuff. It's just fucking Star Wars. That's it. So, these, especially the Imperial characters, they look like they, they could have been officers on the star, on, a, on the, the Death Star. 
they just kind of have that 70s type of hair going for them, but it's not obnoxious and in your face and stuff. It just, I don't know why, it just, I like it. Another thing about this that kind of works for me is uh, John Nadeau, he's got this sort of John Byrne-ish, Todd McFarlane-ish type of type of line style. And the reason that's kind of significant is because this comic, it was published in 1999. I want to say it was like June. Of course, I probably should have checked on this beforehand, but I didn't. And so what I'm going to do right now is vamp for time and act like I had this whole thing planned out in advance, when in fact I didn't. And it says the actual uh, publication date is January the 5th of 2000. So I wasn't too far off. So January of the year 2000. So basically, for those of you keeping track, this isn't that long in the grand scheme of things after the theatrical debut of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And I was in a very definite Star Wars type of mood right around then. And I happened to spy Star Wars Tales number two on the comic book uh, rack at my local supermarket. Because, you know, once upon a time you could find comics at supermarkets and places like that. And there was something about the cover that I just could not walk away from. It's basically Darth Vader standing behind Palpatine as Palpatine symbolically watches Darth Vader take on the Dark Woman. And, I don't know, it's just, it, it's a really neat cover, and Palpatine kind of looks a little Topps trading card, and uh, somewhat, but it's still a very powerful cover, and that's actually what drew my eye, bought the comic, and enjoyed the shit out of it, and especially enjoyed Routine as a story, because... This is the kind of thing, as far as, you know, smuggling is concerned, this is the sort of thing that, I don't know, I could just, I could picture Han Solo doing. And, you know, the fact is, I think most of us assumed that Han's first real contact with the Rebellion was actually in Star Wars, you know, the movie Star Wars. And... You can interpret that, but that's not the only way of looking at it, you know? And I don't know. I mean, either that works for you or it doesn't. You know, Han having some kind of a history with the Rebellion, you either buy that or you don't. And if you don't, there's, I mean, there's really no rational argument I can give you that's going to make you change your mind. I'm just saying that for whatever reason, this has just a very... Star Wars-y type of feel to me. And again, what I mean here, when I say that, is the movie Star Wars, you know, from 1977. You know, Star Wars as a movie, that's, it's just got that feel to it. You know, the dialogue and the things that people are saying, and even the situations that they're in, you know, it all has a very Star Wars-y film type of vibe to it, you know? That's just what it makes me think of, so... Anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me in this segment. What I'm going to do is just take a quick break, and I'll be right back with the rest of Star Wars Tales number two in the next segment.
As superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two, two, Okay, I'm back now, and I'm continuing my little walkthrough here of Star Wars Tales number two. The next story in the sequence here, this is Extinction Part Two. Now, guys, I'm just going to come right out and say it for the life of me. I cannot remember if I talked about Extinction Part One in my episode about Star Wars Tales number one, but I'm assuming I did. I know for a fact that I skipped one, possibly two stories in in that comic, so... But I'm going to assume that this... that Extinction Part 1 was not one of them, and so I'm going to talk about it right here, right now. So, Extinction Part 2, that is. So, anyhow. Creative team is as follows. Writer is Ron Mars. Penciler is Claudio Castellini. Inker is also Claudio Castellini. Letterer is Michael Taylor. Colorist is Guy Major. Editor is Pete James. Summary is as follows. Darth Vader lands on Sofragon's fifth planet in his Lambda-class shuttle and seeks out the Dark Woman. He engages her in a vicious lightsaber duel, lasting several minutes. In the end, Vader knocks a tree down with the Force, which lands on top of the Dark Woman, incapacitating her. Vader walks over to her upper body, which is sticking out from beneath the tree, and stabs his lightsaber down, but by that point, the Dark Woman disappears in much the same way that Obi-Wan Kenobi will just a year later. She appears as a forced, as a forced ghost and tells Vader to let go of the dark side and return to being Anakin Skywalker. Vader refuses to do so, slashing his lightsaber through the Dark Woman's transparent form. She disappears, and Vader slowly walks back to his shuttle, successful in his mission. The end. So, what did I think? Well, I gotta tell you, this is... The story here, when you think about it, is actually pretty thin. In part one, Palpatine orders Vader to track down the Dark Woman. Here in part two... Fucking Vader tracks down the Dark Woman. So, there's really not a whole lot of plot or anything like that going on here. There's really not much of a narrative to work with. I mean, this is 
pretty much what you see is what you get. Now, this, this, their lightsaber duel, you know, they do have dialogue with one another. And this is one of those things that I don't think there was a whole lot of this sort of thing in in the prequels, and especially not in The Phantom Menace. But it was an, uh, sort of an ori- uh, original trilogy trope, I guess, to have people talk to each other while they have lightsaber duels. And so that's what we see here. And as all of this is going on, the the conversation that Vader has with the Dark Woman is... It's really more of a philosophical discussion about the nature of, uh, of the Force. Vader says, You would have made an excellent disciple. Much could have been taught to you, so that you would know the power of the dark side. The dark woman comes back with, The dark side is the easy path. More seductive, but not more powerful. The positive side of the Force can be just as tenacious. And when you think about it, there's a degree to which... She's kind of right. I mean, the the entire shtick of the dark side is that it ultimately leads to death. And life is inherently more powerful than death. And so there's a there's a sense in which you can't there's no possible way the dark woman can be wrong here. It's just the Sith are I guess are too blinded to see it. So Anyway, I mean, they don't come out and make that exact point, but it, I, I think it's kind of made elliptically based on the actions and the other the other parts of the text. So, I stand by it. But anyway, like I say, this isn't exactly the most layered and textured and nuanced story. This story is... It, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's a lightsaber duel, and Vader wins. And that's really all there is to it. But... What I think a lot of people wanted from the prequels, whether or not they got it, is... Well... There's no accounting for taste, I suppose. But... What a lot of people wanted from the prequels was basically Darth Vader in his Darth Vader outfit, you know, with the iron lung and all of that, chasing down Jedi and hacking them to pieces. And there's really not... That never really happens in any of the prequels. You know, we do see little bits and pieces of Anakin slaughtering Jedi, but it's it's dark side Anakin, but it's not Darth Vader with the helmet and the breather and all that stuff. You know, the red lightsaber and all of that. And so there are fanboy buttons that just weren't pressed by the prequels, and this kind of gives a little bit of a, a little bit of flavor of what that type of thing might have looked like because this is a very cinematic comic. Uh, Castellini's art, it's very expressive, it's very stylized, it's very cinematic, in my opinion. You know, you could easily picture this as a movie in your imagination. You know? So, you know, the 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 lightsaber battles and just the kinetic energy and the... and I guess the pace of the battle, you know, you can easily imagine what this would look like as a film, you know? And there's a degree to which I don't think comics should necessarily be cinematic, but Star Wars 
is nevertheless cinema, and I mean Star Wars at its most effective. Star Wars is, in fact, it's not just cinema, it's big screen cinema. You know, this is the biggest that movie theaters are, are, are capable of doing, you know? That's what Star Wars needs to be. And there are limitations whenever you try to do that in comics that I wouldn't say this art entirely overcomes, but like I say, this is a comic book, it's not a movie, but the art is nevertheless very cinematic, and you can easily, like I say, just imagine how this would play out in a movie, I suppose. So, <clears throat> anyway, and one of the things that I kind of like about this is that, you know, the the dark woman, she's no slouch. I mean, she really does make a pretty good accounting of herself. Now, being as, you know, whenever you read the story, being as you've never heard of the dark woman and you know Darth Vader, it's pretty easy to guess which of them wins the fight, but that's not the point. The point is, she makes a good accounting of herself, and she is... Or maybe not so much right now, but at least at you could figure that at one time, she was a worthy opponent to Darth Vader. And that's really what matters. So the final panel here, it basically ends with uh, Darth Vader walking off into the night. He steps on a rose as he does so. And there's this sort of shadowy form of Emperor Palpatine just smiling sadistically and looking down at Vader as he walks away. And... I don't know. This is... That's, I, I guess, the sort of perfect visual representation of Darth Vader's destiny. You know? And that's one of the reasons why I kind of think I might have liked this story a little bit better had it been either Episode 3 era or just after Episode 3. And I understand why it wasn't. And the reason for is, for that is because George Lucas was basically reserving the entire prequel timeline and then probably the immediate aftermath of that for himself, for his own purposes. And so, because of that, this story necessarily has to take place closer to say the Star the 1977 era Star Wars era and that's sort of unavoidable but it's just this last panel of Anakin basically or Vader I should say uh, walking back to his master in his imagination at least if nothing else I don't know why but that to me just comes off as a much more powerful episode 3 era type of visual or prequel visual you know and by the time of the original trilogy we know that Vader's pretty well whipped you know it hits harder if it's closer to the prequel era at least in my opinion you know but whatever a lost opportunity I guess but anyway really dig this story this is a lot a lot of fun and like I say I mean there's really not a whole lot of meat to this story what you see is what you get but one of the kind of interesting aspects of it is that the dark woman just before she dies she calls Vader Anakin Skywalker now the assumption that I always had is that only a select few knew that Darth Vader 
was once Anakin Skywalker. That was not public information in the galaxy far, far away. Just like it wasn't public information that Emperor Palpatine is a Sith Lord. I mean, there are certain things that the Sith kept to themselves. They seem to be rather private in that respect. And honestly, I mean, who can blame them? You know, a thousand years in hiding, what are they supposed to do, you know? That's a big change to make. But I guess the point is, the Dark Woman knows damn good and well that Darth Vader used to be Anakin Skywalker. And I guess when you think about it, that's a powerful psychological tool to use against Vader. And she doesn't really do it as much in this story as I think she could have, because let's face it, that's kind of Luke's job. You know, you don't want to take away from Luke's character arc in the original trilogy, but she does kind of play with it and say, you know, I do know who you are, and you can choose another path. Even now, you can choose another path. And I just, I like that moment, you know? So, like I say, this story, the concept of it is pretty thin, and I think what this is really supposed to be is sort of lightsaber duel porn, and in relation to that, it's definitely a success. But the character stuff that we do get, I really enjoy. So, by no means do I think that this is a, a completely hollow and totally meaningless type of story. So. That, I think, is pretty much it for me, so I'm going to take another break and I'll be right back to talk about the next story from Star Wars Tales, number two. Please stand by. gentlemen this is jason jacanetti you may recognize my voice from the vault of starling monster horror tales of terror and if you don't you should be listening but today i need to ask you a few questions do you like big bugs and you cannot lie other robots just can't deny that when the queen of space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung are you deep in the bee we're sharing are you hooked and you can't stop staring if you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Welcome back as I continue my little journey here through Star Wars Tales number two. The story this time around is just a short and sweet eight-page story entitled Stop That Jawa. Writer, penciler, inker, letterer, and colorist are all the same person, which is to say Dave Cooper. Editor is Pete James. Plot summary is as follows. Max Rebo, Cy Snoodles, and Droopy McCool are arguing in a cantina on Tatooine about the fact that 
In place of money, they're currently performing for Jabba the Hutt in exchange for free food. Sai very loudly insults Jabba, and after noticing a mean-looking droid turn their way, the band decides to leave. They quickly discover that their hover van, containing all of their musical equipment, is missing, and after asking a bystander, they learn that it was stolen by Jawas. They decide to use Sai's hover buggy to track the residents of Max Organ, but are soon tailed by the droid bounty hunter from the cantina. Sai's able to lose him in a rock formation, and they begin to close in on a sand crawler. Max introduces himself, but the Jawas aren't nearly as welcoming, and they push him down into the sand. The bounty hunter appears again out of nowhere, the same one from the cantina, you understand, scaring the shit out of the Jawas. They run off, and then they bring, they bring the, the Max Rebo band's hover van with all of their musical instruments out, and it's all intact. Max Rebo confronts the bounty hunter and says to him, We thank you, but please tell us, why would a bounty hunter like you take the time to help us? At which point, the bounty hunter takes off his helmet and, it, and introduces himself as the harmonica player Tick Tali Talosh, and he asks for an audition to join the band. The end. So, what did I think? Well, this is one of those stories that, to me, emphasizes, I guess, the possibilities that a that a an anthology Star Wars book has. You know, a, a, it's an anthology made up of a bunch of short stories, and this is the kind of story that you can tell. You know, just sort of fun stories like this that they're not. First off, they they fall on a completely different cast of characters than usual as compared to the sorts of stories that we're used to in Star Wars, and especially in this issue, which have mostly been about original trilogy characters. So far, we've had Han Solo, a story about Han Solo, and then a story about Darth Vader. Well, here, these are still original trilogy characters, but they're not... They're not... I guess main characters and that's what makes the difference at least for me you know this is just a fun story where first off we kind of get an eye uh, an idea of how exactly Jabba the Hutt does business which isn't necessarily completely on the up and up because you know just imagine paying somebody in food as opposed to money you know currency that's a kind of fucked up business practice but if you think about it Jabba probably saves a shitload of money that way. So, of course, he's going to be interested in the deal. So, it just makes you think that, you know, this is... I guess if you want to put, like, sort of a character-driven type of spin on this, yeah, I could totally picture Jabba the Hutt doing something like that. You know, but it's also got just the sort of fun angle of a down-on-their-luck band who, they're really just trying their best to make ends meet, and they're not the... They're not the superstars that they like to be, or for that matter, the superstars that maybe they once were. And it's just, it's a fun little story, and I just, I dig it, you know? But another thing is the art, and there's really no way to not talk about the art. I'm not even completely sure how to describe it. It's... I would almost want to compare it to Sergio Aragonis, but I'm not sure if that's the I don't know that's the best I can come up with I'm just not sure if that's 
necessarily very accurate, you know? So, I don't know. But, nevertheless, I mean, I've got to be able to compare it to something, and so, I don't know. It's just, it's really cartoony type of art. I mean, you could almost picture, like, a, like a 2000s-ish kind of uh, kitty cartoon show drawn in this style. I mean, I would almost want to compare it in some ways to, you know, Wild Thornberry Bunch, that sort of... It's almost like an acid trip type of uh, line style, and I don't. I, I just I really really dig it. This is just. I mean, there's really no deeper meaning to this story. It's just fun, you know. And that's something that Star Wars can be, you know. When when you start talking about the expanded universe and whatnot, that not everything has got to be this big existential threat, and uh, you know, it's always all about you know the Force and the dark side and you know, good and evil, Jedi and Seth. I mean, yeah, you can do those stories, and those are awesome, don't get me wrong, but sometimes you can just have, you know, sort of fun stories like this, where you get a little bit of character, if you want it, but it's it's mostly just kind of a zany, fun, Saturday morning uh, cartoon adventure story, and to me, that's what this story really is all about, you know? It's, it's just, it, it's a fun and enjoyable story, and it's funny, you know? And that's not something that I think a lot of people typically associate with Star Wars, you know, the idea of humor and something that's just funny, but this is. And it's just, it's tons of fun. And another kind of neat thing is that we kind of get an idea of just how dangerous, potentially, the Jawas can be. And again, it makes sense. I mean, you know, these are, you're talking about these sort of nomadic desert scavengers that go around, let's face it, stealing shit from people. They've got to be ready to defend themselves, and it stands to reason that, you know, they're all armed, and they can blow your brains out if they decide they need to in order to save their own lives, you know? If it's a matter of self-defense, yeah, they'll kill you, you know? And who knows, maybe they won't wait for self-defense. Maybe they'll just fucking kill you, you know? And so, I don't know, it's just, this is... I don't know why, it's just, it's effective. I like it, it's fun. And it's, it's an an, uh, an enjoyable story, you know? So, I don't know. I mean, more stories like this would definitely be welcomed simply because of how, you know, sort of blood and guts serious a lot of these Star Wars stories can be sometimes. So, anyway, like I say, no deeper meaning to it. It's just, it's a fun and enjoyable story, and I love it. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me in this segment. I'm going to take another break and be right back after these messages. Thirty years ago, I walked into a comic store, and I picked up G.I. Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine.
I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com. Ready to talk about the final story in Star Wars Tales, number two. Title of this story is Incident at Horn Station, and the credits are as follows. Writer is Dan Jolly. Penciler is Sean Phillips. Inker is Sean Phillips. Letterer is Sean Connaught. Colorist is Matthew Hollingsworth. Editor is once again Pete James. Plot summary for Incident at Horn Station is as follows. A nervous and stuttering rock miner arrives at Horn Station requiring emergency repairs on his ship's stabilizer. He's told he's going to have to wait two days for a new stabilizer to arrive. He goes to the local cantina and there he meets a woman named Kiri as well as a brute named Curlo demanding his uh, all of his money. The two find themselves in a standoff but the miner is able to shoot Curlo down. At that moment, a Rodian comes in and invites the miner to a showdown against professional blast fighter Shoto Eyefire tomorrow, just after sunrise. The next day, the miner goes to Shoto's fortress and enters the arena, confronted by two men standing atop these high platforms carrying powerful blaster rifles. So clearly this is going to be a turkey shoot for Shoto. The miner isn't really intended to win this this little standoff. At that moment, Shoto enters and after a few moments yells, Now! And less than a split second later is shot in the legs by the miner. The miner then takes a lightsaber out and injures the two riflemen standing atop those high plat those high platforms. Then he throws stun grenades around to keep the audience busy. Then he plants a detonator and, and leaves, destroying Shoto's fortress in the process. The next day, the miner, who is now revealed to be a Jedi, dressed in full Jedi robes, prepares to leave. He's asked for his name by Kiri, and then he says he'll tell her the next time he sees her. And then he leaves. The end. Okay, so... What did I think? Well, this again is is just a, a fun story. It's a I think Star Wars already has kind of deep roots in westerns to begin with already. So a story that sorta kinda riffs on on the western genre 
yeah, that seems completely legitimate to me, you know? I mean, all that you need whenever Shoto and the unnamed minor Jedi guy have their little showdown is a little tumbleweed blowing, blowing across the screen between the two of them. And after that, yeah, it'd, it'd be... That would pretty much complete it. So, but like I say, this is just a fun little story. And this, again, kind of goes back to universe building. It was... What we saw in The Phantom Menace was... Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon get sent on a sort of a diplomatic mission to Naboo in order to resolve the standoff. You know, they're basically supposed to negotiate some kind of a settlement between the Trade Federation and the Naboo. That was their real purpose for being there, you know? And you can easily figure that the Jedi spend a fair amount of their time doing things like that. But another thing that they probably do is these planets that are sort of controlled and dominated by these sort of tin-pot dictator warlord types, or let's just face it, maybe just bullies, you know what? They may send a Jedi in there, incognito, specifically to take that guy out, you know? And I, again, I mean, when you think about a galaxy as vast as the galaxy far, far away with that many inhabited systems... It's not a stretch of the imagination to think that this sort of thing uh, that's happening on this planet, that this isn't extremely common, that they probably don't spend a fair amount of their time, you know, taking out sort of these tin pot dictators like this, you know, and warlords and, and, and things like that, and basically trying to restore some semblance of freedom to the planet. And another kind of interesting thing here is that the story never actually gives this Jedi a name, but in several panels, especially near the end, he actually looks quite a bit like sort of Episode One era Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, he's got the, the kind of short hair, he's clean-shaven, and, you know, all of that. I mean, you could actually kind of picture this guy, he may very well be Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, and... Really, the only thing that, the only reason that you might sort of question why that is, is the color of his lightsaber blade, which is green. But, you know, who knows? Maybe at one point, Obi-Wan Kenobi had a green lightsaber, you know? You don't know. So, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's nothing really definitive you can, you can hang that on other than his resemblance to Obi-Wan Kenobi in episode one. But there's really nothing that contradicts it either. I mean, it's kind of funny that, again, kind of owing back to Westerns, this guy doesn't have a name, kind of like Clint Eastwood's character in, in the Dollars trilogy. He doesn't have a name. And that's just very authentic to me, in a way. You know, that the the that the... I guess the protagonist doesn't have a name. Now, where he kind of sets himself apart from Clint Eastwood, obviously, is he's not really an anti-hero. He really is a hero, you know? So, there you go. But all around, I just kind of like the Old West type of vibe that this story has to it. it it's, a nat it's just a, a natural fit for Star Wars. It's, it, 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 it 
stylistically, it's of a piece, especially, I would say, with the first Star Wars movie. I mean, you kind of get away from it in the other Star Wars movies, but definitely in the first Star Wars movie, there is, I think, a fair amount of Old West kind of nods, especially with things like Mos Eisley and whatnot. And it's this is just a neat little return to form. I dig this story. And frankly, I dig Star Wars tales. I would love to have a comic like this once again, because I think the the market is strong for an anthology book that it can be whatever it wants to be. It doesn't have to be just one thing. We don't, I mean, do we really need another ongoing series that's all about Darth Vader and the existential crisis that's happening in his soul as he slowly sacrifices it so he can get more powerful on the fucking dark side and blah, 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 blah. Look, I like those stories. They're fun. But you don't necessarily want that shit all the time. Sometimes you want a, just a little bit of a change of pace. And that's definitely what this story is. It's just a nice, fun little change of pace. And I dig that. So all around, lots of fun. And I don't know when, but I'm at some point I will come back to Star Wars Tales. I will talk about more Star Wars Tales comics. I don't have any real plans to do so at this time. There's nothing on the schedule or anything like that, but you can be sure that at some point I'm I will in fact return to this title. It's uh it's just it's too good for me to ignore. At least to start with, it's it's too good for me to ignore. So at some point at an you know, an unknown time in the future, I will come back to this and I don't know. Maybe I'll have a guest with me. I haven't really made up my mind on that. But anyway, this story, and what, actually not this story, this entire comic, it's just kind of sentimental to me because this was the first issue of Star Wars Tales that I ever bought. This was kind of my introduction to the book. And what an introduction. I love all of these stories. And my guess is that Star Wars Tales number two can actually be found in back issues, I would think for pretty cheap. So it's worth keeping an eye out for. If you can find it, it there's no way it's going to cost you all that much money. So satisfaction guaranteed, and you get four really fun stories out of it. And I don't know, It's maybe it's just the headspace that I'm in these days. I want fun stories, and that's what these stories are. So that, I think, is pretty much it for me this week. So... Bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Am I out? Good. That ought to hold the little bastards. traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. 
Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday only at twotruefreaks.com. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. 
friends. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. <laughs> <laughs>